0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Zhang, and on behalf of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, I am super proud to introduce you to my friend, Wookie Kim, who currently serves as a legal director at ACLU of Hawaii and a lecturer in law at the University of Hawaii. Wookie is a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School, and he is a former associate at Quinn Emanuel in Washington, D.C., as well as a former U.S. district clerk in Baltimore. Prior to law school, Wookie was also an English teacher for Teach for America. On top of it all, in his free time, he trains for and competes in 100-mile trail riding races, just for fun. (laughs) Wookie, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank
1: you, Jane. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, same here. Let's jump right into it. Tell us about your work at the ACLU.
1: Yeah, I've been at the ACLU of Hawaii now for just over three years, and... Mm-hmm. It was actually just two months ago that I became the new legal director. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan government watchdog, and our mission is to protect the civil and constitutional rights of people in the Hawaii community.
0: And what is your day to day life as a legal director?
1: So, right now, things are a little bit chaotic and hectic because before I became legal director, I was the staff attorney. And Mm -hmm. uh, we are a very small affiliate and our legal department was just two attorneys. And so right now I'm a one attorney legal department. And right now I spend a lot of my time doing the administrative and sort of management oriented work to just make the transition. And I'm really excited to start hiring for a staff attorney replacement. And then The other portion of my time is spent working on the cases that we have pending, and we are also investigating and preparing some other lawsuits in the not-so-distant future.
0: I imagine it's a really exciting but also troublesome time to be at the ACLU against the backdrop of the spike in violence against Asian Americans. Are you feeling that on a day-to-day basis?
1: So it's interesting because I think Hawaii is a, a unique place and a unique state and that the AAPI community constitutes the plurality here. Mm-hmm. And Ho- Hawaii is always has always considered itself different. And I would argue that in many ways it's not, but at least when it comes to demographic composition, it's certainly different. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, obviously, I've been hearing a lot about anti-Asian violence across the continent, but there hasn't been that much here. And that sort of mm. puts me in this weird... It has put me in this weird situation where I'm not sure what to feel, right? Because everything that has happened in the last few weeks and, or, or I guess it's been happening for a while, but that has accelerated in the last few weeks, it, it's made me reflect on my own identity and obviously instances of feeling like a foreigner in you know, the United States. And I always felt that regardless, just because I never really grew up in the United States, even though I've been a US citizen since birth. I grew up in Asia, attending sort of international schools and Mm -hmm. and US curriculum schools. But it wasn't until high school that I moved to the United States to, I went to a boarding school. And so that was my first time living in the United States. And that boarding school was in New Hampshire, which is the one of the (laughs) the whitest states in the country. And so in short, I've been grappling a lot with everything that has been happening. so it's not new, right? It's just a different instantiation of white supremacy and anti-Asian bias.
0: I feel you. I'm feeling very other. I think that no matter whether you're born here, or no matter how many years you've been here, you still get instances where you're like, where are you from? And for me, I'm like, oh, I'm from New Jersey. And people are like, where are you really from? And I wonder how growing up, you mentioned you felt very other here. Can you give us examples? Do you remember the first times you started grappling with your Asian American identity and what that meant for you on a personal level?
1: Just over the years, there are, as you're mentioning, there are various microaggressions that I experienced. And actually not just microaggressions. And I think about even when I was teaching, there were instances of students calling me Jackie Chan and mm. that, that was hard. I think the recent events have surfaced a lot of the feelings of being othered and being the perpetual foreigner that maybe I wasn't talking about as much or reflecting on as much normally.
0: I totally agree with you. I think it's brought to the surface years, if not decades, of people pretending it didn't happen or just ignoring it or swallowing your pride and just pretending everything is okay that if we just keep our heads down and stay quiet, we'll be accepted one day. Racism is real and we spend so much time denying it, its existence or denying that it bothers us and denying that there's been a problem.
1: Yeah, because it's yeah very easy to just say, okay, I'm just going to ignore that and, and mm-hmm. just try and live my life.
0: So let's go back a little bit to your boarding school days and your college and law school days. At what point did you know that you wanted to be an attorney? Is there anything else that you thought about doing?
1: Sure, yeah. I knew I wanted to go to law school and be a lawyer from relatively early on, just Mm -hmm. because my dad was an attorney and I always looked up to him. And that was always something that... uh, I wouldn't say that I was ever pressured to to go down that path. But it was just I was around the law from a very early age. And so it always interested me. But as far as becoming a civil rights attorney, becoming a public interest attorney, I didn't really have that, I guess, motivation or clear vision until until I was actually uh, in the middle of teaching in DC public schools, right out of college through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you mentioned, Teach for America. And I, I think that experience being a part of a community and s- seeing just how unequal opportunities were in the United States and how w- where you live determines sort of your life trajectory, because where you live determines where you can go to school and where you go to school determines whether you can get a good job and et cetera. Et cetera. And so that experience really motivated me to help those who most need help, knowing that I had an unfair amount of privilege just growing up. And I'm I'm specifically thinking about my educational privilege, Mm -hmm. but even, right, as in in other ways. So I I didn't necessarily know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be coming Mm -hmm. out of college, but I knew it was on the horizon. And truthfully, I think even my dad would acknowledge this. E- even before I knew what I wanted to do, I knew I didn't really want to be a corporate lawyer just mm-hmm. because the lifestyle that my my dad led for nearly 40 years, he stayed at his law firm from the, the year he graduated law school in 1983 until mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. I was almost literally 37 years. First of all, that that doesn't even happen anymore. Like someone (laughs) staying at one organization or one law firm for that long. It was hard. It was a hard life. And even to his very last few years, he was working just an enormous number of hours. And that's not the sort of lifestyle that, that I wanted. And I think he understands that. And you know, I'm very, very appreciative, obviously, of the sacrifices that he made on behalf of our family mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. put me in a position where you can choose. I have more more flexibility. I'll talk about it and I'll say it outright that I didn't have any law school loan. Mm-hmm. And you know, that obviously makes it a lot easier to to leave a big law. Yeah. Which yeah. is obviously where I started my career. But I, I think people don't talk about that as much or mm-hmm. at all. Just thinking about intergenerational wealth, and how that can determine, in some ways, your life trajectory as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So you leave law school. By then, you knew you wanted to do something in civil rights. Yes. But did you see a clear path? Did you see, at that point, you wanted to work for the ACLU or some kind of organization like that? What led you to Quinn Emanuel in, in DC?
1: What led me to Quinn Emanuel was that I had a really great experience as a summer associate there. And I really liked the firm's culture. It's funny because they were known for being very informal and that you could wear flip-flops to work. And Mm -hmm. that suited my own personality. I've never been, despite law being so formal and conservative and and whatnot, I've always been someone who doesn't really care about the formalities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so this COVID work period has been great because I haven't put on pants or a sweatshirt in in a year and a half. And yeah. yeah, Because it's actually funny that I actually had to upgrade my wardrobe when I came to the ACLU of Hawaii because I was so used to wearing shorts and a t-shirt to go to work (laughs) work at at Quinn in DC. Because again, the formality wasn't the priority at that firm. I got to work on a whole variety of of cases and in different subject areas, including antitrust, patents, personal injury, white collar, and mm-hmm. that, that's always exciting because I think one of the fun things about law is that it's solving problems and trying to understand the relevant frameworks and figuring out what will be best for your client. It's A lot of that work was really interesting and fun, but I think at the end of the day, there's so many hours I can devote to doing any one thing and a lifestyle was not ideal. And of course, I did want to transition out. But I recognize that there's value to working at a firm and getting that experience. It's interesting, because I think a lot of my public interest attorney friends will criticize the decision to start your career at a firm. And I actually think it was a very important part of my career development. It's not necessarily for the right reason. But I do believe that when you're at a firm, you get sort of better supervision. And, and the reason for that is the profit motive. Right. When you're a junior associate, the partners who are overseeing you are gonna be giving you feedback, not necessarily because they care about your professional development, but mm-hmm. because they need you to put together good work product that will satisfy the client who's paying the big bucks. And so mm-hmm. just inherently that structure creates a lot of feedback loops. You know, when you get the red lines back and the comments back, it's very critical, very, very heavy, right? And that that's learning, you learn from that. And, and of course, if you've made partner at one of these firms, you've had a, a successful career and are good at what you do. And so that I learned a lot from that trickle down effect. It wasn't formal. Professional development or formal Mm -hmm. uh, mentoring. But then I contrast that to some nonprofit settings where even though you're taking on cases earlier on, you maybe aren't getting that much supervision Mm -hmm. early on. And Mm -hmm. so I I think there's benefit to that. And then the other huge benefit of being at a law firm is just the, the number of hours that you're working. There's no shortcut to learning in terms of spending the time. And when you are forced, to to work
0: spend
1: all your time <laughs> 80 to 100 hours a week or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, you're gonna just learn more faster I think and I think there's it's probably like a, a curve and if, if you're pushing too hard you probably aren't retaining much information For sure. there, you know? yeah. but I think that accelerates your learning path. I would say that since coming to Hawaii my learning rate has slowed down just because mm. I'm putting in half the number of hours and I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. But um, I think there was some benefit to spending two to three years really just grinding and just getting many opportunities to do legal research or discovery.
0: So you spent two to three years at Quinn. What point did you start thinking about your transition out of Quinn? For anyone who's interested in transitioning as you did from private to the public sector, what was that process like for you?
1: So I would say I started thinking about it from my first day. Um, Mm -hmm. I always knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And Mm -hmm. even from my very first week on the job, I was already trying to educate myself about what the landscape looked like as far as how often do interesting jobs come up. And I think that's my one piece of advice to anyone is that you have to consciously think about and make a plan for leaving and, and... I don't know if this resource is still circulating, but the Harvard Law School Office of Public Interest Advising has this guide that they wrote, this book that they wrote, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago called The Great, The Big Firm, The Great Firm Escape. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a book on how you can escape the law firm environment. Mm -hmm. And I found that book actually very helpful just because they encouraged you to think about what you want and to make a plan and to make sure you're looking for job postings. I was from day one looking, never actually planning to act on anything, at least for the first few years. But I knew that sort of after three to five years at the firm, I would want to make a transition. But it was during my second year at the firm, roughly, that I, long story short, I nearly died. I was on a long weekend getaway in the Rockies in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I got high altitude cerebral edema, high altitude pulmonary edema, hyponatremia, hypoxia. I was in a coma for several days and you know, I I nearly died. And from that experience and spending whatever period it took to recover, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of time to reflect on my life and on my career. And it was at that point that I realized I may not have been here the next day. And because of that, I immediately took it to the next level of, okay, I was looking to leave at some point. Mm -hmm. But now I want to make my plan now and immediately started looking and then it it took me a year so it took me a year after that incident to actually land the job at the acle of hawaii so that's another thing is that you have to account for the time that it takes to find and secure another job that it takes a long time so it, it took probably half a year of applying to Different opportunities across the country. One of the things I wanted to do was also leave DC and move closer, ironically enough, move closer to the mountains that nearly killed me. So I applied to some civil rights firms in Denver. I applied in Seattle, Portland, other areas, other communities that have robust public interest job markets, but also have really good access to the outdoors. But it just so happened that basically of Hawaii had an opening. And so I said, it's a little bit further west than I was planning for, but why not?
0: Yeah, I do want to touch on that accident. I remember reading about it on your Facebook and just being horrified. It sounded incredibly painful, incredibly intense. Can you walk us through what happened?
1: Yeah, so I had this long weekend trip planned with one of my best friends, and we were going to run in one day, what's called the four pass loop, which is this really beautiful bucket list trail in the Maroon Bells uh, wilderness outside of Aspen, Colorado, Mm -hmm. but it's at relatively high altitude and it's fairly long. Most people take three or sometimes four days to hike it. And we were planning to run it in one day, but in short, I started experiencing altitude sickness right at the midway point of the trail. And unfortunately, because it's so remote, we were at a location where there was no escape route. And the only way to get off trail and to descend in terms of altitude was to make our way back over two mountain passes in either direction. I was, we were in the middle of the second, in the valley between the second and the third uh, mountain pass. And because of that, and because it took six hours just to get back over the top of the first pass, My condition had deteriorated so severely that I'd already lost vision at that point. I had lost my ability to stand on my two feet. And then eventually I went unconscious. And so at that point, that's when my friend ran to get help after getting three hikers to stay with my body and make sure that I didn't aspirate. So it turned out it was, I was really lucky and I'm very grateful for those three people because one of them was an EMT. And so they- made sure that when I was seizing that I didn't get hurt anymore. But long story short, I was rescued by a nighttime helicopter m- mission from with the uh, mountain rescue team and was airlifted to the hospital. And that first night that the, the doctors thought I was gonna die. And so my parents were rushing from Korea to wow. uh, Denver. I made it that first night and then my condition started stabilizing but I was in a coma for uh, two and a half days and
0: do you have any memory of what happened at that first 5 12 24 hours
1: we were about I don't know five or six hours into the hike when I told my friend uh, I need to take a break this headache is getting really bad this is beyond regular altitude sickness
0: you've had altitude sickness before so you thought initially yeah yeah
1: you could power through it Exactly. I'd been on 14 or so. I'd been Mm -hmm. at mountain peaks that are 14,000 feet. And this trail, the the highest altitude you hit is just over, I think it's around 12,500. So it's not even, yes, it's high altitude, but it's not extreme. And so I didn't think much of it. But at that point, I realized I wasn't feeling good. And because we were so far from getting off the trail, I said, let's abort our run. But unfortunately, Because of where we were, it took six hours to even get close to the trailhead. And over those hours, I slowly started losing control. At first it was, I had just such a splitting headache that it was so incredibly painful. I don't really have migraines or I've never really had migraines, but I imagine it's something like that. But then eventually I started losing balance. So I was unable to walk in a straight line. I then lost my vision, so I couldn't see, and so he had to guide me. At some point, I blacked out, so I don't even remember talking or moving after maybe three hours into the return trip. Um, And then er everything after that is just a recounting or a retelling from my friend. And, you know, I was still apparently conscious for some period and was apparently talking, but I have no recollection of that. And then eventually I went unconscious, and we couldn't move anymore. And so that's when he thankfully found some people to stay with me. And he ran to get cell signal and call for help.
0: Wow. And what was going on through your mind at that point? I could imagine every cellular level of fear that you were going through. Do you remember any vivid thoughts that popped up?
1: I remember a couple. I I definitely remember that early on, I was not panicked. Having done so many endurance sports, I knew that panicking and stressing out and overthinking it would mean that would reduce my chances of Mm -hmm. of getting off the mountain. And so it was my mission to get off the mountain. But I do remember that we had reached the summit of one of the passes. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling so terrible. So that was the first pass that we had gotten over. And then we needed to go down into the valley Mm -hmm. and then climb one more mountain pass to get out. But I remember that feeling then that it had already been a couple hours and my condition was deteriorating so rapidly. We bumped into some hikers and I asked for some aspirin to help with the headache. And they they gave it to me. But it was at that point where I had the realization that I didn't think I was going to make it off the mountain. And I, I remember breaking down in front of them. I think they were just absolutely Baffled as to what was going on because I don't think they knew that how how rapidly my condition was deteriorating. But I remember breaking down in front of them and my friends consoling me and saying, We're going to get off the mountain. And then I don't remember anything after that. That's probably around the time when I blacked out.
0: And the next thing you know, you're waking up in a hospital and your family's there.
1: I remember coming out of my coma because I felt like I was drowning. And it was because I had tubes down my throat immediately I woke up and I started trying to yank the 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 tube out of my my throat and that's when they intervened and they put me in what what uh, we jokingly called hand jail where they tied up my hands so this was my first time with tubes down my throat
0: right and right.
1: It, it's definitely a choking drowning sensation and I was doing everything I could to get it out but yeah that's what I woke up to and I think I was drifting in and out of consciousness, but when I finally came to, I saw my my mom and okay. I was like, why are you here? I'm wow. in a hospital, what day is it? And yeah. I realized that it, it was sad that my first, once I came to my senses, one of the first things I asked was like, what day is it? Oh shit, I missed my meetings and you know. <laughs> Uh, we were preparing for a trial. We were you wow. know, two weeks away from this really uh, big trial. And I, w- I had missed our Monday. It was Wednesday at that point, And I had missed all these meetings. I was like, oh my God, like, what is wrong with me? What, yeah. what just happened? It's a sad commentary that that was the thing that was, I don't know, most important in my head at that time.
0: Mm. So tell me about the next few weeks. You mentioned this was a wake up call for you in terms of rethinking and reevaluating your life.
1: Yes, I actually had a miraculous recovery and the doctors were very surprised by how quickly um, I recovered. And I was Mm -hmm. actually discharged from the hospital within 10 days. And I was back at work within a month and a half or so, even though my neurologist said it would probably take three to six months and to recover and that I'd be at home. I had a miraculous recovery, but when I got discharged from the hospital, I was so frail and so weak. I remember my mom, I was flying back to DC with my mom to accompany me. And I remember having my backpack and that being so heavy, but felt I had a 200 pound pack on me, even though it was probably 20 pounds. Mm. And I, I had trouble walking and trouble maintaining balance. And then I do remember even my first run where I went to the gym in my apartment and I got on the treadmill and I think I set my treadmill for a 15 minute pace. Mm -hmm. And I did one mile and that was so hard. Mm. Um, That was in August. And I ran my first hundred mile race that December. So I had a miraculous recovery where within six weeks of the incident, I was starting to run again. I was running, I was running just two to three miles at a time, but then it just picked up and within a month of when I started running, I was, I almost felt back to normal. And that was just pretty mind-blowing to me, how quickly that occurred.
0: It must've been super humbling for you to start from peak condition to not being able to run a mile. What was the mental process
1: for you? I think it was actually pretty easy because I was so grateful that I was even able to do Mm. anything. I think I've always been a glass half full, not glass half empty person. I think it would be easy to be like, oh, I've been set back by this. But instead, I thought I'm alive. Yeah. And I'm able to move because there was a very real possibility that I was going to have long term brain damage from the cerebral edema. And just miraculously, I had zero damage even after meeting with two different neurologists Mm -hmm. and getting multiple MRIs. Before I got cleared to return to work, I I had to go visit a neurologist in DC and and all of that. And she remarked that there was almost no sign that I'd even had a traumatic brain
0: incident. And
1: so that was really that was really great. And so everything I was just grateful for, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to walk Again, I was grateful for it. And then that morphed into being able to shuffle again and then being able to do a five mile run again, and then eventually run a half marathon and then train, get back into my regular routine. So so I was excited to keep improving my health and keep improving my physical and Mm -hmm. and mental condition. Mm
0: -hmm. And in that time, you go back to work, you said within a month and a half. Yep. And... What is the road to Hawaii? Then you mentioned you were more eager to like make that transition now.
1: Yeah. So basically, I became more focused on following the advice of the great firm Escape mm-hmm. and coming up with a plan and regularly looking at job postings and uh, when things came up, applying to good opportunities. And so you know, I applied to a few things. That following spring, seven eight months after the incident, yeah, and then it wasn't until the following summer, so a full year after the incident, that I saw the ACLU of Hawaii job opportunity. And the ACLU was always a dream organization of mine, and I never really thought I would end up there, but I, I figured halfway between the East Coast and. My family. New family. Yeah. And we had been on vacation to Hawaii several times growing up. And I was like, okay, why not? And so I applied. I they flew me out for the interview and I loved it. And I flew out my then girlfriend and now wife out there as well. And she was willing to give it a shot. And before it, we accepted. And I was able to negotiate though that I wouldn't start until the following January or actually ended up being beginning of February, so that I could stay at the firm until I got my year-end bonus right, right. Uh, before moving. So um, I had the offer in, in the fall, in September or October, mm. but I didn't move. We didn't move until January, four months later.
0: And how's life now in Hawaii?
1: I feel very grateful that I live in such an amazing and beautiful place and that I'm able to do such a rewarding and meaningful work. And from day one, I started exploring the mountain trails. And what's really cool about Honolulu is that like very few other major cities in the world, the mountains are literally right outside or adjacent to the city. And I live downtown and I'm able to within 45 minutes, run from my doorstep to the summit of a mountain and have mm-hmm. a 1,500-foot overlook over the entire city. There, there aren't that many places in the world where you can do that. And yes, in other places, you have lots of mountains around you, but you have to drive to get to the, the mm-hmm. base of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I basically live at the base of a mountain. And then during the pandemic, I was taking a step back from running. I wasn't feeling as motivated to do things. And obviously, everything was challenging. And yeah. one of the things I took up to was surfing. And that has also been so amazing just because there's something very therapeutic about being in the water.
0: And what is next for you? Like when you look out into your life, like five, 10 years, how do you envision it? I think
1: it would be ideal to be an old timer at the ACLU. I would like to be in this position as a legal director for the foreseeable future, as long as I can sustain a similar lifestyle. Other than that, I think that the biggest thing is just starting a family. My wife is actually a 1L at the University of Hawaii Richardson. Oh, school I didn't know law. that. Okay. Yeah, so she's um, on track to hopefully become our family's breadwinner. We've been thinking about starting a family at some point, probably mm-hmm. during law school, mm-hmm. uh, just because the reality is that becoming a mother while you're already in the workforce, especially in your first couple years of that, it can be very tough mm-hmm. and whatnot. I, I, I know so many friends and family who divide their lives between the, the pre-kid life and the mm-hmm. post-kid life. So maybe in a couple of years, I'll feel different, but this is the dream life. And I don't aspire to do anything. Like this. this is the end of the, being a legal director at the ACLU was my dream job. And I don't know how I got so lucky to end up here relatively early in my career. And so I'm really grateful for that. And hopefully it'll stay that way.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you look back at Wookiee maybe 10 years ago, what is the advice you would give him?
1: I think just making sure to trust your own path and your own sort of intuitions. I think one of the things that's really hard is going against the the current going against Mm -hmm. what everyone society your parents uh tell you about what is the right thing to do and i've bucked the the trend or i've gone against the current in several ways even moving to hawaii i definitely remember that my parents were very concerned about that decision because Mm -hmm. right hawaii is not known as a great place for building your career or what have you. And I felt some hesitation as well about that. As I was talking, it was okay, am I giving up my amazing whatever career trajectory to move to this relatively sleepy, sleepy city in the middle of nowhere,
0: in the middle mm. of
1: the Pacific. And that first year was, I definitely felt that. I was so used to being around like all the type A people in mm-hmm. BC. And I missed it to some degree. The pace of life here is so different. And I'm the fastest person who walks around on the streets. You know, I still, <laughs> I still, even though I never lived in New York City, I walk like a New York City person. Yeah, it's the East so, Coaster. Yeah, yeah I'm an East Coaster and people just, they saunter. And when you schedule a meeting for 11, you show up at 11.05, 11.10, and it's not a problem. It's, it's, not a, <laughs> it's, it's just okay. It's accepted. So... That took some getting used to, and I've tried to embrace it. And I think it's healthy. I, I prefer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so used to a very different mode of living. And in short, right, it, it would have been very easy for me to just stick to what I was comfortable with and just move from D.C. to Boston or San Francisco mm-hmm. or, or New York. And I'm really glad I trusted my instinct that I needed something more drastic to Mm -hmm. follow my heart or whatever maybe not my heart it wasn't an emotional decision it was more yeah follow my brain
0: (laughs) (laughs) follow your brain I like that a lot thank you so much Wookiee for your time this is great I'm so happy to hear that you're so happy I'm so proud of you seriously thank you you, Jane Um, thank you for your time it's been really fun